we're in Acts chapter 2, and um, this uh, sermon, uh, if you will, of the Apostle Peter is one of the most important sermons in the Bible. Uh, it really is. And so we have uh, gotten through part of it, and we're going to pick up and at least, Lord willing, finish it today, although I'm not sure about that because there is a lot that I want to deal with here. I want to pick up with verse 21, but uh, just a reminder real quickly of, of the context because one or two of you uh, weren't here last week. But this is this, meaning chapter 2, is uh, the chapter on Pentecost, the feast day, 50 days after um, Passover, and uh, in, in the context of what had happened to Jesus 50 days after his crucifixion, this is an agricultural feast of ancient Israel, ancient Judaism, and is at that time that the Holy Spirit comes in fulfilling the promises that the Father made, that Jesus had predicted. It is a part of the new covenant promises in Jeremiah 31, Ezekiel 36. All of that is just how the Jews who are, who are seeing what's happening, that's how they're processing this, through the grid of all of that Old Testament prophecy and promise. But the Jews who are in Jerusalem, again, they would be there for these feast days, uh, thousands and thousands of them. Luke had told us earlier in chapter to where they were from. They're from the entire Eastern Mediterranean world, actually more than just Eastern, from the entire Mediterranean world. These are, and I wrote this in the board last week, so I'm not going to rewrite it, but these are Hellenistic Jews of the diaspora. A diaspora means spreading out. Uh, the Jewish people, largely due to persecution, had spread throughout the Mediterranean world. And they would come back to Jerusalem for these feast days. So all they all have dialects and languages that they know. And so the miracle of Pentecost is those 120 people who are uh, filled with the Holy Spirit are speaking in a language they did not learn. Glossa, I wrote this again on the board last week. Glossa, which is tongue, is uh, interchangeably used in this chapter with dialectos, language. And so, again, I'm just reviewing what we did last week. And so it's so astonishing, so, so astounding for everybody to see this. They, they ask, what is happening? And then a second group says, oh, I know, they're drunk. And so Peter then stands up and says, it's only 9 a.m. in the morning. They're not drunk. And what he does is he, this is really important. We developed this last week. He quotes from Joel chapter 2. Joel is a minor prophet who prophesied about the coming of the Holy Spirit. And Peter says, this, what you just saw, is that. Meaning what Joel prophesied. And then he quotes from Joel verbatim in 17 and 18 about the coming of the Holy Spirit and that all and it's really remarkable how he does this. All genders, all ages, all classes, socioeconomic groups will experience this miracle of the Holy Spirit. It is not for a spiritual elite. It's for everyone. Then, in verse 19 and 20, again, continuing to quote from Joel 2, he shifts to the day of the Lord, the future, and that day of the Lord language, all those ominous, cosmic, catastrophic events associated with the day of the Lord. And then verse 21, which is where I want to pick up, is the solution. How do I avoid the day of the Lord? And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. The way to be saved from the day of the Lord is to respond to the gospel all centered in Jesus Christ. Now, uh, that's a very, very, very quick summary of what we did last week. Are you with me up to date? I mean, this is really important to get the context. So now what Peter does, Peter has explained what just happened, i.e. the coming of the... He's just explained it and connected it with the Old Testament prophecy. Now he says, calling upon the name of the Lord is the only way to be saved. So what he does now in verse 22, and it's, it's an extensive passage, uh, part of the sermon, he now, and this is really important... He gives a series of proofs 
as to who Jesus is. And as he did in quoting Joel, now he quotes from two other Old Testament texts. And I just wrote them up here. He's going to quote verses 25 through 28 from Psalm 16 to prove the resurrection. That the resurrection was something uh, prophesied and predicted in the Old Testament. And it was just fulfilled. And then he's going to quote Psalm 110 in verse 34. Psalm 110 verse 1. By the way, this is the most quoted psalm in the New Testament. Psalm 110 is quoted over and over and over again because it is the exaltation of Jesus Christ. After his death, burial, and resurrection, it's his exaltation. So Peter, I mean, it's, it's very powerful. Peter, as he did with Joel, what Peter is doing here, because these are Jews, albeit Hellenistic Jews of the diaspora, they knew the Old Testament, and so he is going to show them that calling upon the name of the Lord is the only way to be saved. What did he do which provided the way of salvation. So that's what he's about to do. It's very theological, but it's rooted in uh, fulfilling the Old Testament prophetic texts. And that's why, honestly, this is one of the most, if not the most important, sermon recorded for us in the Bible. Okay, you with me? So, verse 22. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God. Now, I don't know, ESV is a translation I'm using, if you're familiar with the word attested. Another way of saying that would be proven to you by God. And what did he do? By his mighty works, by his wonders, by his signs that God did through him in your midst. Now, what is he referring to? The works the wonders and the signs. Well, all the miracles Jesus did during his three years of public ministry, right? Mm -hmm. And they saw it. They saw it. They heard about it. Many of them witnessed it, whether it was the feeding of the 5,000, the feeding of the 4,000, the raising. And the the one event that was seminal and earth-shaking was the resurrection of Lazarus. That was one of the most important miracles Jesus did. And that was, that was one of them that resulted in so many people acknowledging who he is, but also the leadership becoming absolutely adamant, this guy's got to go. I mean, the Sanhedrin and so on. And so, I mean, they, they're all plural, works, wonders, such, all plural. The many things Jesus did. But what, what Peter's doing, and it's absolutely correct, Peter is reminding them These are messianic acts that prove who Jesus is. These acts are not just a show off. God's not in the business of showing off. Miracles always prove something. And that's all he's saying. Now remember all he did. These these are attested by God that he is who he claimed to be. Jim, was, was the raising of Lazarus uh, and Jesus delaying coming right away, did that really make it somewhat more dramatic? Oh, oh absolutely. Because absolutely. the word went out, he's dead. Absolutely. He's clearly dead. Absolutely. And, the mourners were there. It was, yeah, absolutely. And Bethany, where they lived, is just two miles to the east of the temple. I mean, it's just over the Mount of Olives. I've been there, and it, I mean, it's not a big town at all, but so, I mean, it just everybody knew about this. I mean, this was one of those things that, you know, regardless of how you looked at Jesus and whether you wanted to follow him or believe anything about him, everybody heard about this. And I mean everybody. This was a very, very widely known event in what Christ was doing. Now, verse 23, again, this is very, very theological. Now, I, I just, I'm going to, Go around here for just a minute. Yeah, I do that. All right, I'll do it here. Remember the railroad tracks, okay? Here is a perfect example of the railroad tracks. The one track is divine sovereignty. I'm not going to write all this out. The other one is human responsibility, if you will, or responsible freedom. Again, I'm not going to write all this out. See if you can figure out which side of the track is being focused upon here. 
in verse 23, this Jesus, now I, I, um, I would translate it a little bit differently. This Jesus, delivered by the hands of lawless men, according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified, you killed him. So, delivered up by the hands of lawless men, you crucified, you killed him. That was a responsible freedom, responsible act on the part of the Jewish leadership. Right? They were Nobody's saying right, so they you don't understand. In other words, what Peter is, all Peter is saying is, Delivered up by the hands of lawless men, you crucified and killed him. But then notice, according is kata, meaning according to the plan, according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. Which side of the railroad track is that phrase? Divine sovereignty. So in other words, all Peter is doing in verse 23 is, is an immensely theological verse. But in that theological verse, you have the two aspects that create enormous tension for us as human beings. Things don't just happen. They're according to the plan and sovereign rule and foreknowledge of God. But the actors are responsible actors. Humans are responsible for what they do. They're not robots. They're not automatons. And that's all Peter is doing. And it's just, in, in one verse, it's amazing. He's just reviewing again. This didn't just happen. This delivering up and crucifying and killing of Jesus. This didn't just happen. It was part of the plan and foreknowledge of God. What plan? The redemptive plan. The plan that was hatched in Genesis 3.15. By the seed of the woman will come one who will crush the head of the serpent. And what the Old Testament does is just adds more and more detail to who that is. <laughs> and now you know who it is. I mean, you know who it is anyway. But, but he, all Peter is doing is just, just laying out for them in, in, a, in, a, way, in a way that that is absolutely clear. This didn't just happen. This was part of God's redemptive plan. But those who were the ones who executed him, when called for his execution, the Sanhedrin and Rome who execute him, are culpable. Lawless men. <laughs> so then what did God do? God raised him up. Of course, the resurrection. Loosing the pangs of death, because it was not possible for him to be held by it. That's pretty strong language. That's pretty categorical language. It was impossible for Jesus to stay in the grave. I mean, that, that language is it, it's just categorical. There's no ambiguity there. It was impossible for him to stay in the grave. So, he's just reviewed the gospel in theological language, putting it in, in a way that the gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, all do, that the public ministry of Jesus was to prove something. His wonders, his signs, his, his works to prove who he is, the Messiah of Israel, the Son of God, the Redeemer of humanity. And then the plan of God that he go to the cross at the hands of culpable human beings and the resurrection. And so there, all of these Jews who had made the, well, all of them, these diaspora Jews, all hearing this message, <clears throat> they're hearing the gospel, but they're hearing it in a way that is, is theologically sound and that Peter's not done because he wants to do one more thing. Because they're Jews, he wants to connect this to the Old Testament prophecies. And so, in verse 25, he begins to do that. 
What did Peter mean? It was impossible for him to stay in the grave. What did he mean by that? And so he quotes extensively Psalm 16, verses 8 through 11. He quotes the whole psalm, that whole section. For David says, David wrote Psalm 16, I saw the Lord always before me, for he is at my right hand that I may not be shaken. The confidence and security that David had in God. Therefore, my heart is glad, my tongue rejoiced, my flesh also will do own hope. For you will not abandon my soul to Hades, or let your Holy One see corruption. You have made known to me the paths of life. You will make me full of gladness with your presence. The confidence and security of King David and his hope was even God would not abandon him in Hades. It would not let him see corruption. What does that mean? He's going to resurrect him. And so what Peter does, and this is how the Old Testament prophets and all of the rabbis understood this, this is referring to Messiah. Because remember, I know you know this, but Messiah is the son of David. You know, he is in the lineage of David. And all of the messianic promises made to David are fulfilled in his son, the son of David, which the New Testament declares quite clearly is Jesus. And so what Peter is doing, he's applying what this messianic prophecy in Psalm 16 to Jesus. And the Jews totally bought into oh, this. Oh, yeah. They knew this was referring to Messiah. Because they, they believed, always believed, that in the, New, in the Old Testament that the Messiah would come through David. Is that That's right. Absolutely. Because even, you might remember, Jesus asks the Pharisees in Matthew, I think it's 21 or something like that. Uh, guys, I'm just curious. Whose son is Messiah? You remember their answer? He's the son of David. And that's the right answer. That's the correct answer. And so, yes, the, the expectation, the understanding, the anticipation, the clarity was that the Messiah would be in the line of David. And so what Peter is doing, God raised him up. It was impossible for him to stay in the grave. For, let me explain it, just like David said in Psalm 16, that great messianic psalm. That's why he couldn't stay in the grave, because God promised the Messiah that he would not abandon him in Hades, would not allow his Holy One to be corrupted. That's why he had confidence. That's why he had security. That's why it's triumphal. And so David, I mean, Peter has just shown before all of these diaspora Jews, using Psalm 16, you must come to terms with Jesus. Because when he was resurrected, that fulfilled this great messianic promise in Psalm 16. You can't ignore it, you Jews. You cannot ignore this. But he's not done. Verse 29. Peter is now going to give an exposition of Psalm 16. Do you know what exposition means? He's not, it's He's now going to give an exposition. He's going to explain how Psalm 16 fits to what he's just said. Brothers, I say to you with confidence that the patriarch David, by the way, that's very unusual to call David patriarch. You know, the patriarchs were Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, but David too. It's just kind of unusual he calls him that. He both died and was buried, and his tomb is with us to this day. By the way, I mean, as you and I would now get on a plane, I'd take you to Jerusalem, I'd show you Mount Zion on the hill, right under, right under the Senecal, which is the church in which they believed the upper room uh, building occurred. In the basement of that church is the historic tomb of David. And when Jesus, excuse me, when Peter says these words, that place was a place Jews went to. I, I mean, I've seen it. It's a huge, very dark, dank room in the basement of this building, but it's an enormous, an enormous black covering over the tomb. And every time I've been there, there have been Jewish, uh, uh, old um, conservative, uh, Orthodox Jews worshiping there. And so David, uh, Peter is saying, 
The tomb is with us today. Remember the tomb? It's on Mount Zion. That tomb is there. This passage can't refer to David because he's there in that tomb. Do you follow me? And so I'm pretty sure because of where he's preaching us, he pointed to Mount Zion and said, that's where the tomb is. You know that? You've been there? You've worshipped there? You know that? Being therefore a prophet and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on his throne, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ. That he would not abandon the Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. Do you understand what Peter's doing? This can't apply to David. Psalm 16 cannot apply to David because David's still in his tomb. Remember, that's where we go there and worship there and it's it's a big place people go to as Jews. He's still there. It can't refer to David. I'm getting animated and excited, so let me slow down. It can't refer to David. David was like a prophet. And he believed that the promises God made to him of an eternal throne, an eternal dynasty, an eternal kingdom, would be fulfilled in one of his descendants. The Christ. Verse 32. This Jesus, God raised up. In raising him up, he fulfilled Psalm 16, verses 8 through 11. It can't be David. It's got to be one of his descendants. And David knew it would be fulfilled by the Christ, the Messiah. God raised him up. Conclusion. Therefore, Jesus is the Messiah. That's the conclusion he wants him to draw. I mean, isn't this sort of exciting? I know we don't get excited about biblical truth in this class, but this is, I mean, this is exciting. What, the, what he's doing here, it's irrefutable. For you and I who are, for you and me who are Gentiles, and, and you know, we're not as steeped in all that the, the Old Testament promises, but the Jews here the first century, I mean, for them to hear this and hear what Peter is doing, and hear how he's laying this out. That's why we'll read at the end of this, 3,000 of them respond and Jews? accept him as, as the Savior. Jews? Jews, mm -hmm. absolutely. Oh, nice. And they have this massive baptismal service, which I'll talk about when we get there. Now, I, I'm really excited about this, so are you, are, I don't, you're not as excited as I am, but are you with me on this? This is, this is the, I mean, they're trying, the apostles the have been trying to get the Jews to shift gears, and, yeah. and he just hit it with a supercharger. Oh, absolutely. I mean, he just really, yeah. I mean it, it's magnificent what he's doing here. And any Jew who knew anything about the Old Testament cannot refute what he's saying. Yeah. Can't say, but, 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 be, there's no but. <laughs> they know Psalm 16 is referring to the Messiah, and they know David's tomb is on Mount Zion. They've been there. So it can't be referring to David, and because God raised Christ from the dead, therefore Jesus is the Messiah. And all of the promises are being fulfilled, but he's not done. He's not done yet. Are you with me? Yeah. All right. Being therefore. Okay. God fulfilled the promises of Psalm 16 in Jesus. Being therefore exalted at the right hand, having received from the Father the promised Holy Spirit, he has poured out this, meaning the Spirit, that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. So what verse 33, now listen very carefully to this. What verse 33 does is summarizes the three results of the resurrection. The three theological results of the resurrection. Number one, he's exalted Jesus at his right hand. That's why he's going to quote from Psalm 110, verse 1 in just a minute. Number two, having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit. All, well, I shouldn't say all, one of the major parts of the Gospel of John, more than Matthew, Mark, and Luke, is John keeps stressing that when Jesus is resurrected and goes back to the Father, the Spirit's coming. And then thirdly, he has poured out this, meaning the Holy Spirit, so that, that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. 
So he's doing, he's, he's linking something here that we haven't seen in, in, in discussing Pentecost. What he's doing is he's linking the resurrection of Jesus Christ and his exaltation and the coming of the Holy Spirit. He's linking those two now. For the Jews who are hearing his words and the Jews who will read this in years to come, he's linking the two. That the Holy Spirit coming, what you are seeing, what you are hearing, is a consequence of the resurrection of Jesus and his exaltation. And then to prove this, he says, for David did not ascend into the heavens. David didn't ascend. David wasn't exalted to the right hand of the Father. But he, this David, says... Now, this is in, in, in English, and even in the Greek, this isn't as clear as you go back and read it in Hebrew. In Psalm 110, verse 1, Yahweh said to my Adonai, Yahweh, the first Lord, remember Hebrew has no consonants, said to my Adonai, Now, in, in, in English here, they're both Lord. And so you think, oh, the same word. No, 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 they're not the same word. Yahweh said to my Adonai, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies, my, your, enemies your footstool. So and, and this, this, is, this, is, this is wondrous. <laughs> Psalm 110, verse 1 prophesies the exaltation of the Messiah. But it's also, and this is really important, it's also proof that the Messiah is just not human. He's not just a human. He's also divine. Because Yahweh says to my Adonai, Adonai is another title for God. As Yahweh is a title for God, Adonai is a title for God. So verse 1 of Psalm 110 is one of those many, many proof texts out of the Old Testament for the Trinitarian nature of God. One essence of three persons who differ relationally and functionally. And here you see it. Yahweh, the Father, says to Adonai, the Son, sit at my right hand until all of your enemies... Our major footstool. From this exalted position, Jesus Christ mediates all the new covenant blessings. My own opinion is, although not everybody agrees with this, the throne in which Jesus is sitting there is the throne of David. He has begun to fulfill the Davidic covenant. That's not as important as the main point. The main point is Jesus, finishing all his work, his death, burial, resurrection, ascension, sits down at the right hand of the Father and begins to mediate the new covenant blessings to all of those who put their faith in him. And what is he doing at the right hand? Well, 1 John 2.1 says he's our advocate, which is sort of an exciting truth. Because every time Satan makes an accusation, Jesus Christ stands up and says, he's mine. I bought him. And Satan stands up and says, do you see what Jim Ekman did this morning? He's one of y'all. And Jesus says up, stands up and says, he belongs to me. He's, he's mine. I purchased him. Amen. I mean, that's all involved in that term advocate. Secondly, mediating new covenant blessings. The Bible over and over again tells us Jesus is praying for you and me. Jesus is interceding for you and me with the Father. I know that's not an exciting truth to you, but that's an exciting truth. And he is, he's at the right hand of the Father, and he stands, he sits. And when you read the, we'll read about this the way we're going in 2020, but in Acts 7, Chapter 7, Martyrdom of Stephen. When Stephen dies, as I should say dying, what does he do? He sees Jesus standing. 
ready to receive him into glory. And it's just, this is a, this is a wondrous truth. It really is. It's, it's, it's theologically magnificent for you and me to just think about and meditate. Psalm 110, verse 1, which Peter's quoting and applying to Jesus, saying, he's the exalted Adonai that Yahweh is honoring because he finished his redemptive work. And now, I mean, another thing that develops out of this, now he's waiting for the Father to say, go get your church. That hasn't happened yet. So Titus, when, Titus 2.13 tells us that's the blessed hope. We're waiting for that to happen. So when we're, we're down and we're depressed and we, we think we have no value as an individual, Christ is presenting us oh, yeah. to absolutely, God. Absolutely. And he is our advocate. He's our advocate. Mm-hmm. Ad- advocating for mm-hmm. us then when we're going through mm-hmm. a deep valley, perhaps. Oh, any situation or circumstance you find yourself in, Jesus is our advocate. That's right. That's right. And so Peter, uh, and uh, honestly, Psalm 110, it's a short psalm if you go back and look at it. It's not very long. Psalm 110, every single Jew would know that applies to Messiah. There was no question about that. And so all Peter's doing is he's applying it to Jesus. He's the Messiah. So you, you, it's just, and I hope, you know, it's, well, it's 20, we've taken about a half hour to do this. It's not that many verses, but I, I hope that the, the way I've done this and the exposition I've given this is, is adequate for you to see what Peter is doing here is he's presenting irrefutable evidence for the Jews in A.D. 33, 50 days after Jesus was crucified, to really come to grips, come to terms, consider, weigh all the evidence. I'm saying the same thing about four or five different ways as to who he is. You must respond to him. You can't sit on the fence with this guy. You can't just look at him as some famous rabbi or some revolutionary. That doesn't fit. (laughs) Psalm 16 applies to him. Psalm 110 applies to him. And both of those do not allow you to just look at Jesus as some great man. He's the exalted Messiah, Son of God, Adonai, all those wonderful titles and magnificent terms that refer. <clears throat> and then he draws the conclusion. Here's the application. Here's the call to action. Here's what you must do. Verse 36, Let all the house of Israel know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus, whom you crucified. See the three terms? Lord Kurioth, sovereign Lord of the universe. Christ, Messiah, Jesus, Yeshua, Savior. Three great titles. Kurioth, sovereign Lord. Christ, Messiah, Savior. You crucified him. Going back to the previous section, which was a part of the plan of God to provide redemption and salvation for the world. All right? Great assignment would be do a thought paper on Peter's Pentecost sermon. 1,500 words. Not a 1,000. Because it takes too long. But I, you know, obviously I'm being facetious. I don't understand this. Any questions about uh, Peter's sermon and how he set it up? You got, remember how he sets it up. First, he proves using Joel 2 that what just happened is fulfilling Joel. And two, he transitions to trying to demonstrate with irrefutable logic using the Old Testament that Jesus is the Messiah. He's the sovereign Lord. 
he's the savior, you must respond to him. Um, my question is on 34, where you said the Lord said to my Lord, and Yahweh verses Adonai, and can you just maybe, I didn't catch it the first time, but is one does not have preference over the other, or can you kind of talk about those Yahweh, Adonai, is it equal, Lord to Lord, or Heavenly Father to my Son? Well, uh, yes. There, there are about three different phrases you use there in your question. So, well, I know, and that, it is hard. Uh, it, it, there, there's, there's a theology about Psalm 110 uh, that um, can only be understood when you understand that God is Trinity. And I, I connected a bunch of thoughts there. So, I mean, the only way this can be understood is if God is a triune God. So, what is going on here? And this, this, was, the, this was the challenge that uh, the, the Jewish person had in trying to understand this as a prophecy before Jesus came. Because the, in the Hebrew, and you go back and read Psalm 110, verse 1 in Hebrew, it's Yahweh says to my Adonai, now, again, Yahweh is a title, name, if you will, for God. It's probably the most important one in the whole Bible. Adonai is another name or title for God. So you have Yahweh saying to Adonai, if God is absolutely one, that doesn't make sense. It's like he's talking to himself. You know what I mean? But Yahweh says to my Adonai, and this is how the New Testament, that's why it's the most quoted psalm in the, in the New Testament. What the New Testament wants us to, to conclude is, this is Yahweh saying to Adonai, this is the Father saying to the Son. Remember, God is, and the Trinitarian nature of God is one essence of three persons who differ relationally and functionally. That relationship is defined as Father, Son, and Spirit. Each one functionally has a different role if you will, responsibility in the redemptive program that, that, that the Trinity has hatched, if you will. And, and so that's why what, what Peter is doing here in quoting from this, Psalm 110, verse 1, is what I mean by this. He's saying this exaltation of Jesus, which follows the resurrection, fulfills Psalm 110, verse 1. And this is what the, and the book of Hebrews does this. What, what Hebrews does is they argues that from the right hand of the Father, the Son is mediating all the new covenant blessings through the Holy Spirit. Now again, that's, those two sentences I just uttered are very, they're loaded with a lot of theology. But that is how the New Testament develops all of this. And the only way that makes sense is if God is triune, Trinity. Did I help or did I confuse? No, you, you were good because I guess I was thinking of Genesis 3.15 too where the first promise is made and then this is, I don't want to say this is, the, this is not the final promise, but then this is, I like the way you said that. It made sense that Jesus is the conduit to the New Testament. That's right, that's right, that's right, that's right. Jim. So Peter made this, gave this sermon 120. No, no, no. This would be more than just 120. This would be all of those who are who have heard the gospel message and so on, who are trying to figure out what knows going on. Are they drunk? So it's all of those various diaspora Jews. And then this book wasn't written until, what, 60, 100 years later? No, uh, about 30 years later. About 30 years later. So what, I mean, how did this get promulgated out to the rest of the Christian community? Then? Was it those that heard were expected to kind of carry the message forth? And, I, mean, it, I mean, it's such an important... Mm -hmm. I mean, it's, theologically, it's critical information. Absolutely critical information. Well, part of it would... And now this is a phrase that May or, not, may or may not be helpful. 
but the oral tradition of these events was part of the oral tradition of all that Jesus had done. That oral tradition was written down as this is written down. And, and um, Peter, Luke tells us in both his gospel and in, in, he did a lot of research in putting this together. Who do you think, this is pretty obvious, who do you think was one of his most important sources? This is Luke. Peter. Peter was one of the most important sources. As Mark's gospel, Peter was a major source for him. So there, there are two things going on here. Number one is the oral tradition, which is just passed on. This is what people, I mean, pe- pe- people literally would take notes. <laughs> and this, this would be something that, that they would pass on from church to church, from leader to leader. But this stuff is inscripturated early, very early. 30 years after the event, this is inscripturated. And any any other document in the ancient world, that's extraordinary. That that close to the event, it's being written down and, and being authoritatively transmitted in writing. That's almost unprecedented for anything else in the ancient world. But very rapidly, because as you correctly said, it's just so central to everything that the church represented. And especially in Acts 1.8, start in Jerusalem and go to Judea, Samaria, that Jerusalem, Judea, this is really important stuff. Because these are the Jews. And they've got to understand that everything about Jesus and, and what he did and what he accomplished fulfilled the Old Testament prophetic text, which is what Peter has masterfully done here. And they just and these are Jews who are hearing this. They must come to terms with this. They cannot ignore this. It's just kafafel. No, this, <laughs> these texts are the most important texts for them as Jews. My goodness. Is the next verse clear? Yes, exactly, exactly. And we believe that this is not only recorded by men, but it's also led by the presence of the Holy Spirit. Oh, of course. Guide, yeah. Guiding these men as they wrote. Second Peter, Second Timothy 3.16, 2 Peter 1.21 are always the two verses you need to have in your mind about the Holy Spirit's role in inspiring and recording Scripture. <clears throat> it's absolutely correct. Now, Jim anticipated this, but look at verse 37. Now, when they heard this, they were cut to the heart. Now, that's a metaphor, but that's not hard to understand. This, remember how the Bible uses heart, not that organ that pumps your blood. It's the center of your will, center of who you are. And they said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, brothers, what shall we do? They hear the truth. They understand the truth. What should we do with this truth? And so Peter says, repent, be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of sins, and you will receive the Holy Spirit. Now let's take that apart. The word repent is metanoia in Greek. I know that you're really glad I told you that. But this is really an important point. Repent of what? Repent of your understanding of who Jesus is. You must repent of your old understanding, your distorted, perverted understanding of Jesus as someone who needed to be killed. You must repent. You must accept everything that I have just, me, Peter, I have just laid down about who Jesus is. You must do a 180-degree turn from what you used to believe about Jesus and now embrace who he is and the evidence of that will be your desire to publicly identify with him. Which, remember, that's what baptizo meant and baptized meant in the early church. You are publicly identifying with Jesus. Remember, these are Jews. You must repent. You must do a 180-degree turn on how you understood Jesus and now with all this evidence down how you do, you must accept him 
And now you publicly identify with the faith that you put in him, which is baptism. For the forgiveness of your sins. That the, the, the word for there is ace, with, with a view to on the basis of your, the forgiveness of sins. So, real quick, baptism is not new to them. Not at all. Not at all. Compared to the community, you say for us real quick, the, the Jewish purpose of baptism? Cleansing. Ritual cleansing. That's what it was. Ritual cleansing. All around, uh, none of you have been to Israel with me, but all around Temple Mount, old Jerusalem, where the, where the uh, uh, Temple Mount is, there are what are called mikvots. That's the Hebrew word. But these were the cleansing pools. There are dozens of them around, all around Temple Mount in Jerusalem today. Now, they're all the archaeologists, but there are just dozens of them. And these were the ritual cleansing pools that the Jews used before they went up to the temple. So when these 3,000 people are baptized, where are they baptized? In all of those cleansing pools. There's no difficulty. Critics have said, well, they couldn't have that many people baptized. Oh, yes, you could. It's very easy. Those mikvotes are everywhere. And so, I mean, it was just it was a magnificent thing uh, to, to, this, this would have been an astonishing thing to witness. 3,000 Jews publicly identifying with Jesus the Messiah in Jerusalem, in these mikvots, which used to be the old cleansing pools they would get in before they went up to the temple, now publicly identifying with Jesus. There was no more radical thing for a Jew to do in AD 33 than that. And you have 3,000 of them do that. Now, if that doesn't shake up everybody's category in the old city of Jerusalem in AD 33, not much else would. You're supposed to say, yeah, that's right. Yeah, that's okay. Right. okay. Okay, a couple of your hands went up here. Is that uniquely Jewish? So for the Jews that went into um, Greece, into Egypt, into mm. Syria, did they do that also? Or is that uniquely Israeli? That's a good question. Uh, it, 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 was, it was unique because of the temple. Once you're a, a, a diaspora Jew, where you just have the synagogue, you, you, you don't, because you're cleansing yourself to go up to the temple and offer sacrifices and so on. If you're in Elephantine, Egypt, which is way down the Nile, which is a pretty large Jewish community, or you're in Rome, you can you don't, there are no sacrifices, no priesthood there, and so there's no mikvah. You're not cleansing yourself to go to the temple. So that's been borderline weird for them? Or borderline what? Strange for them? Or no? That's no, no, no. They, they the, the diaspora Jews would understand all of that, Glenn, but they wouldn't have practiced it until or unless they went to Jerusalem. Okay. Then they would do that. Because that was a part of the ritual of, of getting ready to, I mean, I, I wish I could just take you all there. i just show you these, the south steps or along the west side. These mikvotes are all over the place and then all the steps. So you do your cleansing, then you walk up the steps to the temple. It was just part of the ritual cleansing as you prepare to go up and offer sacrifices and so on. But if you're in a synagogue in Rome, I mean, you're not doing that because you're not going to offer sacrifices. And see, that's once, this is another issue, not directly related to the point, but when Rome destroyed the temple in AD 70, that's what the great crisis for Ju Judaism was. Now, there's no temple, no high priest, no sacrifices at all. All we have left are the synagogues, and they, they're peppered all over the world. So what does it mean now to be a Jew? Okay, I'll go to the synagogue, but you know, there's no high priest, and no more sacrifices, so, and this has been one of the real crises. It still is today for Judaism. What does it mean to be a Jew with all of that gone? Now, the reason all of it's gone is because Jesus fulfilled it all and it's not needed anymore. They just don't want to let go of it. But just explaining your question, those, these cleansing pools were very significant and very much a part of the ritual of going up to the temple. But you're outside of Jerusalem. You're not going to do that. But John the Baptist was not using mikvahs. He was off the river. He was. 
that they did baptisms outside of that. Yes. Now, you're, you're raising another interesting issue because uh, at Qumran, where the Essenes were, they, the ones who copied the Dead Sea Scrolls, who believe, there are cleansing pools there, which is really interesting. It, it's created an issue. Why are those cleansing pools there? Um, in, well, I mean, so you're still seeing Jews regardless of where they are in, in those early years, there's a lot going on in Judaism. They still have these cleansing pools. What are they cleansing themselves from? From sin. That's how they're looking at it. It's just, it's, it's, it's an interesting phenomenon. So when these so when Peter says this, they understand what he means. But they're understanding what this really means something. I'm now going to publicly identify with Jesus. I'm going down to the mikvahs to be baptized now. I'm publicly identifying with Jesus as Messiah. I'm taking the turn. I'm cutting all the cords of the past. Yogi Berra, come to a fork in the road, take it. You know, remember that? He, they take it. That's it. And they're cutting all this. This is a very radical thing. And as he tells us, in, Luke tells us in verse 41, 3,000 people did this that day. That's, that's really remarkable. 3,000 of these diaspora Jews, as well as presumably those who lived in Jerusalem as well, they're making that radical commitment of faith to Jesus and they're cutting all ties with the past. That's a, it's, a, it's an amazing thing to, to, to try to contemplate and imagine and envision what this would have looked like. And we're going to read in just another couple chapters, it'll be another 5,000 come to faith. So within about a year after Jesus was back to the Father, 10,000 Jews, that counts some others, 10,000 Jews are now disciples of Jesus in Jerusalem in less than a year. It's kind of exciting. Rob? You mentioned that that crisis is still with Jews today. To a degree, yeah. How much has that contributed to the rash of Jews becoming secular? Oh, huge amount, huge amount. Uh, um, in, in what is you know um, called uh, the the Reformed Jews or whatever. Uh, liberal theological Jews with lots of labels. It really starts in, in the late 19th century. Uh, starts in Europe and in, in, in America, New York City's huge movement um, to because all this stuff is so old, we're, we're going to cut all the ties and we're just pretty much going to adapt to the modern secular world. And so Judaism because it comes more of just an ethnic identity than a religious defining everything about my life revolves around us like it does with an Orthodox Jew. And the, the synagogues and Temple, Bethel, etc. in Omaha, for the most part, they're all Reformed Jewish congregations. You don't have a significant number of Orthodox Jews in Omaha. Now, in, in, in New York, in Brooklyn, you do. My son went, he worked in New York, the Wall Street, for a little bit before he got transferred to the office in London. He lived in Brooklyn, and it was his apartment was in Brooklyn. It was really interesting. Surrounding him were all these Hasidic Jews, and there's my son, you know. Um, but uh, he would walk across the Brooklyn Bridge there. But there you see, when you go to Brooklyn, you think you're in the old city of Jerusalem. The largest concentration of Orthodox Jews in the world are, is Jerusalem and Brooklyn. That's it. I mean, really, there, there are other places, but that's the largest concentrations of them. And they, there are a few here and there, but as far as I know, uh, I think you could count on one hand the number of Orthodox Jews in Omaha. Can you explain that? About 5,000 Jews live in Omaha, but I, I, don't, I don't think any, as far as I know, there aren't any significant Orthodox Jewish Presence. Can you explain the difference between Orthodox and Reformed Jews briefly? Well, 
that isn't as easy to answer as it, you think it should be, because there are about four different groups of Orthodox Jews. But for the most part, the Orthodox, the typical Orthodox Jew is trying to meticulously follow the Mosaic law, and they believe very strongly in the coming of a personal Messiah. He hasn't come yet. Whereas the Reformed Jew is typically not rigorously following the Mosaic law. They observe the feast days and holidays and, you know, Hanukkah and Purim and all that stuff. But they really, and, and most of them are not expecting a personal Messiah to come. Fred. So with the baptism, and this is after Pentecost, and so where does the Holy Spirit fit into this baptism? Well, the Holy Spirit's <laughs> role, as Paul will tell us, is to baptize us into the body of Christ, where we are identified with the church, the body of Christ. All right. Uh, uh, yes. Um, so I'm trying to be brief. So I understand, you know, Christian baptism today is, you know, it's um, one person and one baby or one adult, depending on, you know, but it's a one-to-one is what I'm trying to say. What was the relationship in Jewish uh, cleansings or in, in the in those pools? What did the, did the uh, rabbi just say you're all cleansed and three thousand people would go in, or was it a one to one type relationship? As it, well? it, first of all, the rabbi is not doing this. This would be Peter and the other apostles. In the New Testament, right? That's correct. But it's like one. You know, I baptize you in the name of the Father. So That's right. Spirit. It is. It's one. It's individual. It's individual. It's individual. What was it in the Jewish? Uh, yeah, there was, uh, you mean just the cleansing pool? Yeah, you would just do it on your own. You would do it as your own? You, you would do it. It is part of you getting ready to go up to Temple Mount. Okay. You personally, individually cleanse yourself in these pools. Okay. You. you have to think about those huh. pools. Huh. These are not fresh water with chlorine and, you know, it's really, this is rainwater that we've been laying there. And depending on the time of the year, uh, when the holiday, I mean, it, you just don't, but don't think about that. I don't want you to think about it. Did they just sprinkle themselves? Oh, no, no, no. They step in? Yeah. yeah. I mean, it was just, it was, it's an interesting. All right. Um, papers are shuffling. Notebooks are being closed. So it must be time to quit, I guess. So uh, I will honor that uh, time to quit, even though I don't want to. We didn't finish it, but we almost... Help me to remember to start with verse 39 next week, okay? Uh, because I'm not done with this, Peter. A couple more things that happen, and I want to make sure that we, we cover those because it's magnificent. I hope my goal this morning was that we would really, really understand what Peter is saying in his famous Pentecost sermon. And, and I hope... I hope you really got that. It's, it's, it's one of the greatest sermons in the Bible. It is just so masterful and how you can see Peter really knew the Old Testament. And he was able, obviously under the inspiration of the Spirit, but he was able to weave all this together to prevent irrefutable, present irrefutable claims of who Jesus is and what he's done. And that demands a response. And that's... They're cut to the heart. So let me pray. Lord, thank you for, well, the privilege you give to me to teach and to just review this wonderful passage of Scripture, this quite quite magnificent summary of, of, of all of the Old Testament text, weaving them together into what Jesus Christ is, what he did, what the Father accomplished, and how the redemptive plan that you, O God, hatched in Genesis 3.15 is fulfilled in Christ. And uh, we have the record of, of, of Luke, who wrote all this down. 3,000 people responded. That's a, a huge number for a, a town of that size. And, and then it says they're baptized. What, what an extraordinary thing to witness. 3,000 Jews publicly identifying with Jesus as their Messiah in a very personal way. What a magnificent demonstration of the power of the gospel to change people. We thank you that Luke recorded this. Thank you, Holy Spirit, that you inspired it. Thank you that we have the privilege of studying it. May these men have a deeper conviction in their hearts of who Jesus is, what he's done for them, 
and why coming to terms with the claims of Jesus is the most important decision of life. As we're dismissed, we thank you for the privilege we've had over these last couple of years to meet in this place. Thank you for Andrew and what he's done in trying to be our advocate. We accept this decision. We believe that you have another plan for us. Thank you that Joel has arranged for us to be able to meet at First National the next three weeks. And as we process and look at maybe some other options, we just continue to want to meet and study the Word of God together. As we're dismissed now, may we represent you well in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. Amen.